Our Father, we come to you and we come to your word with eager expectation, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us direction, that you would give us application for our lives, Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit, please, please let us understand this text. Please, God, let us see our need for Christ. Please let us see the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I was trying to figure out how to start this lesson off, I thought, you know, what I really need is a one-sided coin. And I'm not talking about a coin that has the bottom side shaved off or anything like that. I mean a coin with only one size. Does anybody, has anybody ever seen one? Of course you haven't. I'm kidding. You can't picture in your mind a one-sided coin, right? I mean, how, how would that work? It, it couldn't, right? Because we, we recognize that that is a logical impossibility. And with that in mind, keep this in mind, that faith and works are two sides of the same coin. And yet our tendency is to treat it like a one-sided coin. Can a coin be one-sided? No. It seems like a silly question, I realize, but what we have to be thinking about is whether both sides of that coin are present in our lives. Because James said that faith without works, again, two sides of the same coin, faith without works is dead, according to James. Conversely, however, that also indicates that works without faith are powerless, that they are meaningless, that they ultimately contribute nothing to us. A monkey can be trained to do all kinds of things that a human being can do. But does that make him a human being? Of course not, because he's still got the nature of a monkey. And likewise, somebody can be trained to look like a Christian, to act like a Christian. They can even be taught to speak Christianese so that on the surface it looks like they are a Christian. And yet, without faith, all it is is behavior modification on the surface. Conversely, so what's the difference between legitimate faith and faith that's merely lip service? The difference is good works, good fruit being born in the person's life by the Spirit through the, through the person. That is the difference. Today we start the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the 12th chapter of Genesis. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 4. This is where we really begin our study of the life of Abraham. And I should point out that at this point, his name isn't even Abraham. His name at this point is Abram. And of course, in, in, the, in the course of time, we're going to see God give him a new name, rename him Abraham, which means uh, which means father of many nations, but at this point, his name is Abram, which means exalted father. Exalted father. And that's, that's, a, that's pretty ironic given what we learned in the last chapter that his wife was barren. Her womb was barren. So imagine that. A guy who couldn't have kids whose name was exalted father. Abram is one of the most important characters in the entire Bible, in all of Scripture. One could make the reasonable argument, actually, that he's actually more important than Moses, that he's more important than David, he's more important than Peter or Paul. 
He's one of the most important characters in the entire Bible. One could even make a fairly strong argument that the only person in the entire Bible who's more important than Abraham is Jesus. Nobody's going to take that position from Jesus. It is all about Jesus. But one of the reasons that Abraham is so important is because he is a reflection, to varying degrees, of each and every believer. Each and every person who is a child of God can be seen, can be reflected to some extent in the life of Abraham. Like Abram, you were elected by God from eternity unto salvation. Your place in God's kingdom is a gift from God. It's not earned. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't deserve it. And in fact, you didn't even seek it on your own. And without God changing your nature and transforming your heart, opening the eyes of your heart, you wouldn't have even wanted it. And like Abram, God instilled in you by His grace, the gift of faith through the proclamation of the Gospel. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that grace and faith are not of yourself. They are not of yourself. They are are gifts. Both of them are gifts. Grace and faith are, are gifts unto the believer. And thus, there is no room for anyone to boast. If it were of us, if it was something that was, that was in us, we would have a reason to boast. We'd be able to say, hey, I, I, I did this, and, and you didn't. And so, there's a self-exaltation factor there. No, there is no room for self-exaltation in God's economy because grace and faith are gifts from God unto His people. Over and over again in the New Testament, Abraham is given uh, as an example of how God works to save His people. And he's even referred to as the father of the faith because he's actually the first biblical character to fully demonstrate, to give us an accurate reflection of God's saving work in a person and in God's work on a rebel's heart unto salvation. And what we've learned about Abram so far just in the the few verses that that he was included in in the the 11th chapter of Genesis, what we've learned so far is that he was born in a time when nobody on the face of the earth believed in God or worshipped God or acknowledged the true living God. In fact, for about 350 years, Scripture is silent on there being anyone who is faithful unto God. 350 years, and I told you guys last time, I think it's worth repeating, that's longer than the United States has been a country by about 110 years. If you can imagine nobody worshiping or acknowledging or being faithful unto God for that long, nobody had faith in God in the whole earth. All turned away from Him. All suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness, choosing instead to serve demonic pagan gods. And Abraham, or Abram, was no exception. He was worshiping the moon god, Nana, in his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans. But God chose Abram. He appeared to Abram. He called Abram. And there are at least three reasons that God called Abram, by the way, that I think are worth noting. And none of them have anything to do with something that was inherently distinct or special or unique in Abraham at all. First, God called Abram and his wife because he had planned to save them from eternity. But beyond the personal aspects of salvation, God's purpose in calling Abram 
was in order for Abram to bless, to be a blessing to all the families of the world. But we also can't overlook the fact that part of God's plan for Abram was for him to be an example of the type of faith that God would instill in His people. The type of faith that pleases God. The type of faith that glorifies God. An obedient faith. Just like anyone who's ever been saved, Abram was saved by grace alone through faith alone. And his obedience was the evidence of his salvation. Works are not the root of our salvation. They are the fruit of our salvation. So our passage today is found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1-4. to And what we're going to see in this passage is that faith without works is dead. Works without faith is sin. And true saving faith, legitimate faith, is made evident by good fruit in the life of the individual. So we start with the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12. We read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As we consider what God says to Abram here, what God instructs Abram to do. We see that God is not offering suggestions for an easier life. He doesn't say, you know, Abram, it might be a good idea for you to move to Canaan. He's giving instructions. God instructs him. He doesn't come to him and say, you know, here's a travel brochure. Look at all the amenities that we've got in the land of Canaan. Why don't you head over there? No, he gives him instructions. Three things. Three things to start out. First, God instructs Abram to leave his country. Of course, we know that he was in Ur of the Chaldeans there. But is there a parallel in the Christian life to this calling on Abram's life, being called to leave his country? I don't think we have the liberty to, to allegorize the text. We, we certainly don't have the, the liberty to do that freely, however we choose to interpret it. But I would say God does call us to leave our country in a sense. Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, God calls every believer to do something similar, although maybe not in the same sense. Some people are called to the international mission field. Some people are called to, to move, to travel, maybe for training. I think of Garrett and Catherine who moved here from Minnesota. They sold everything that they had in Minnesota, moved here, and ended up moving down to California where they're being trained for ministry. So some people are called to, to do something like that, but most are not. But what every Christian, what every child of God is called to do is to change your primary citizenship. Before Christ, you lived your whole life as a citizen of the world. And I'm not talking about the world in a physical sense. I'm talking about the spiritual sense. Babylon, when God calls a person with his effectual calling, it is a calling to a new citizenship. To no longer live as a citizen of Babylon. To no longer live as a citizen of the world. But to live, first and foremost, as a citizen of heaven. So it's not talking about the place that you reside primarily or necessarily. It means that when God calls a person, He calls them to leave their old values. To leave their own ideas. To leave their own opinions. 
their desires, their old affections, their loyalties, and their aspirations behind. Because those are all products of the world. And He calls us to trade them in for the values and the desires and the affections of the kingdom of God. As Paul said to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, first and foremost, is citizens of heaven. And we've got to live here in this this dark and broken world as citizens of another kingdom. And yet, there are many who claim to be Christians who have not forsaken their spiritual citizenship in Babylon, in the world. They share the world's values. They are virtually indistinguishable from those who are unsaved in every way whose citizenship is still in the satanic kingdom of Babylon. And they may have professed Christ at some point in their life, but there's the risk, there's at least the possibility that if they are not changed, that they were not changed, that they are just giving lip service. In our culture, one of the biggest no-nos is to actually question a person who claims to be something. Try questioning somebody's identity these days and you are inviting public scorn. Am I right? You guys know what I'm talking about. It's a big no-no to question also the legitimacy of someone's faith in our culture. And it is entirely unbiblical to say that that's not an option, to question the legitimacy of somebody's faith. If it acts like a dog, if it looks like a dog, if it barks like a dog, if it eats what a dog eats, if it smells the way a dog smells, guess what? I have good reason to think that it's probably a dog. And if it claims to be a cat, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to question the legitimacy of that claim. And that's biblical. When God calls a sinner to Himself, He doesn't just offer a few nice suggestions for a new way of living. He commands it. The Gospel is both an invitation and an instruction. He commands it. He doesn't merely ask for your your intellectual assent to His existence. The devil knows that God exists. He believes that God exists. And yet, he at least has the wisdom to tremble at the thought. He doesn't just ask for your intellectual assent. He also demands your heart. He demands your heart, your will. He demands your your desires, your affections. God's call is not a call to personal fulfillment. It's the King's sovereign call to a personal surrender in that person's life. Faith without works is dead. And if you claim to have faith, but your faith is not made evident by good fruit, good fruit like regular repentance, for example, confession, obedience to God's Word, if your faith is not accompanied by these types of things, it would be wise to check your spiritual pulse. Because these things, regular repentance, confession, obedience to God's Word, these are all signs of life. Just as when a team of, of SWAT people, for example, when they go in, when they send a team in to find people who might have, have lived through a disaster, they're looking for signs of life. These are the signs of life you're looking for in a Christian. Good fruit. Especially if you're doing those things out of a desire to live a life that pleases God rather than doing it out of a sense of dreadful obligation. Uh, I better do this because 
God instructs me to. I don't want to do it. Man, I, I, I wish I could do it. But God's Word, I know what it says, whatever. Eventually you will lose the conviction to live that way. Doing things out of a dreadful obligation is simply behavior modification. God wants your obedience not to flow from behavior modification, but from heart transformation. So are you living as a citizen of heaven? Or are you abiding in the muck and the mire and the filth and the sinful rebellion of the world? The first thing God calls us to do is to live as citizens of His kingdom in this kingdom. The second thing God instructs Abram to do is to leave his kindred, his relatives. Again, is there something similar that God calls us to do? I would say yes, I believe there is. In, in a sense, this is something God calls all of his people to do, not necessarily in a physical sense, to abandon your family. There are rare circumstances where that may be necessary, but it's probably not necessary. So it's not necessarily in a, in a physical sense that I'm talking about, but in a spiritual sense. Think of it this way. Who raises the kids? Who raises the children? Mom and dad do. Who's supposed to teach values? and morals, and obedience to God, to the kids. Mom and dad are. Who should have the greatest amount of influence on the way that a child thinks? Mom and dad. Mom and dad are. Who teaches them values? Who teaches them behavior? Who teaches them all these things? It's mom and dad. The family does. These are mom and dad, moms and dad's jobs. So the question is, what was influencing you spiritually speaking, before God called you? What were the influences in your life that were shaping your behavior, that were shaping your thinking, that were shaping everything about you? Who or what shaped your values? See, children naturally feel this, this need. It's an instinct. They feel this need to impress mom and dad. So maybe the question is, whom do you feel the need to impress? Who do you want to, to impress or, or to please the most? You must no longer allow the things and or the people who instilled and influenced these worldly values in you to influence you in such a way once you are in Christ. You must no longer allow those things to contribute to, to, to the way that you act, the way that you think, the way that you value anything. Because when God calls someone, He calls them not to live for their own glory, but to live for the glory of God. And to live for the pleasure of God. And you can't continue desiring to please or impress people more than you continue, more than you desire to please or glorify God. As Paul would say to the Galatians, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's very similar to what Jesus said about serving two gods. He said it's impossible to serve God and money, money being the, probably the primary God for most people. He said it's impossible because eventually you'll hate one and love the other. You, you, you can't do it because you can't obey both. So you can't be a servant of both. In order for you to grow in the likeness of Christ, you will need to renounce and to turn from the worldly influences that once influenced you. 
You'll need to resolve to live your life for the glory of God, for the pleasure of God, above and beyond your desire to please anything or anyone else. This is a first commandment issue. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods other than me. And if you allow yourself to be influenced by people who do not have godly ambition in their influence in your life, there's a very, very, very high chance that you will end up bowing at the altars of their gods. For some people, this might mean finding a new set of friends. For the rare person, it might mean actually leaving their family. Very, very rare. For others, it might mean spending less time watching TV. For others, it might mean turning off the computer. It can mean all kinds of things. It's going to mean something different to you than it might to your neighbor. God's calling in the life of His people is a call to be concerned, first and foremost, with what God thinks. God's calling in the lives of His people is a call to be first and foremost concerned about what God values, what He finds pleasure in, what glorifies Him. And so as you consider your life, as you consider your priorities, as you consider the things that have influenced you, can you honestly say that you have a desire to live all of your life in the presence of God, under the dominion and authority of God for the glory of God. Because that's the life that God calls His children to. The third thing that God instructed Abram to do in calling him is to leave his father's house. Now, in the physical sense, Abram really was called to, to leave his country, to leave his kindred or, or his, his relatives, and to leave his father's house. But in a spiritual sense, he was also called, as you and I are, to leave our old lives behind. According to Ephesians 2, which we just read a few minutes ago, we were born as what? What was our nature when we were born? We were children of wrath. We were all born children of of wrath. We were children of Adam. When God adopts a child of wrath by His incredible grace, that person is no longer a child of Adam. He no longer has the sinful nature that was imputed to him from Adam. He becomes a child of God. It's, a, it's not just a change of residence, it's a change of nature. And children of wrath and children of God have one thing in common. They act in accordance with their spiritual fathers. And this is the point that Paul was making in Romans chapter 6 when he asks the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he answers it, by no means. How can one who died to sin still live in it? There's the changing of the nature. How can somebody whose nature has been changed still live in the old nature. He goes on to say, we know that our old self was crucified with Him, with, with Christ, in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In order that we would no longer be children of wrath, but adopted as children of God. So are you still living like a child of wrath? Are you still living like a slave to sin? 
Because God's call is a calling for you to leave behind your worldly citizenship, your worldly influences, and your worldly ways. He tells Abraham to leave these things and to go to the land. He says, go to the land that I will show you. Now maybe when you consider these things, maybe when, you, when, when, when this mirror is held in front of you and you are looking inside yourself and considering these, these three parts of God's calling, maybe you realize that you've fallen short. Good. Because you have. And so have I. But the good news is that our standing before God isn't based on our faithfulness. It's based on God's faithfulness. You're not saved by the promises you've made to God. You're saved by the promises He's made to you. You don't stand in your own righteousness before God. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that you can stand before the throne of God blameless, faultless, in God's own righteous perfection. If you've truly saved, or if you've truly put saving faith in Christ. And so, as you examine your life and the legitimacy of your faith, the question we have to remember the question is not perfection, because the person who says that they have no sin is a liar. The truth is not in him. So, the question isn't perfection, it's direction, it's progress. The question isn't sinlessness. The question is, are you sinning less? The question is effort. Are you striving? The question is your heart. The question is your attitude towards sin. And conversely, your attitude toward obedience unto God. Do you even care when God's Word demands a change in your life? How does that affect you? See, Abram isn't just an example of faith because his faith was flawed. He's also an example of grace because he did fail. He did continue to sin. He was imperfect. And we're going to see that over and over and over again in his story. He would, he would fail. God would tell him to do something and he'd kind of halfway do it. Or he'd completely mess it up. He'd be a liar. We see, we'll see that as we, as we go along, that he would lie to, to save his own life. Instead of trusting in God's sovereignty, he'd say, oh no, this woman's just my sister. That's all talking about his wife. But every time he would fail, every time he would do that, his failures would catch up to him. They would, there would be consequences because of his sin. And every time he repented, every time he turned from his sin, God was there to restore him. God was there ready and eager to pour out His grace upon him. And the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. We will fail. We will fail to do exactly what God calls us or instructs us to do on this side of glory. You will fall short of God's holy, perfect standards of righteousness. But repentance. Repentance opens the floodgates of God's grace upon your life. Acknowledging that all repentance is faithful repentance and all faith is a repenting faith. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Even though the world is a place of of wickedness, of rebellion, of spiritual darkness, of spiritual misery, many people still have strong ties to it. 
And so when the Word of God is sown upon their heart, there are a lot of things that can prevent that seed from taking root, which we learned a couple weeks ago. And Abram is no exception. He's no exception. There are a lot of things that would prevent God's the faith that God instilled in him from growing. But the good news is that God is an expert at cultivating the heart. God is an expert of tilling and clearing out the soil of the heart, of deepening the soil of the heart. And as we've already seen in the previous chapter, nobody and no thing can thwart God's sovereign will or God's plan or God's purposes in a person's life. Next we see that God establishes a covenant with Abram. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. God says to him, And I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a covenant promise that God is making with Abram. This is all an act of grace on God's behalf. And He doesn't give Abram a whole lot of specifics. In fact, I'd say this is just the bare bones. Just go. Just go here. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you there, but you've got to go. You've got to move. He doesn't try to entice Abram. He doesn't try to convince or persuade Abram. He doesn't give Abram a set of lengthy explanations or reasons for this move. What he gives Abram is something much, much better than a clear understanding of what he's going. He gives him his promise that he will be with him. And he gives him his promise of blessing him. To what end? What would be the reason that God would bless him? in order that Abram would bless others. He says, I will bless you. And he goes on to say, so that you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Abram was this pagan, idolatrous Shemite. He was given all these Amazing promises, all by the grace of God. Not because Abram deserved them, not because Abram earned them, not because Abram even wanted them on his own. And how would this work out? How would this all unfold? All these promises, from Abraham's perspective, think from his perspective right now. How is this all going to work out? How is God going to bless him? How is God going to bless all the families of the earth through him? He has no idea. He has no clue. We know, because we have the testimony of the rest of Scripture to fill in the story for us, but at the time, Abram had no idea how God could possibly bless all the families of the world through him. From Abram and Sarai would come the nation of Israel. And from Israel would come the seed of the woman that was promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A Savior. A Savior who would be called Jesus because He would save His people from His sin. A Savior who would bear the curse of sin on the behalf of His people, releasing them from the curse, freeing them from the chains of sin, justifying them before God so that they could stand before Him blameless, clothing them in His own righteousness, healing them spiritually so that they could stand before God in order that they could be faultless, blameless, without condemnation before God. Now, Abram would get 
a little bit of a fuller understanding of the details later on. But we, he, he would never, on this side of glory, he would never have a fuller understanding like we have. Because we're on, we, we get to read the whole Bible and see how this all played out. He simply needed to trust and obey what God had instructed him to do. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is sin. True, legitimate, saving faith is made evident by good fruit. And immediately, Abram fell flat. Immediately. He failed. He compromised. He didn't do exactly what God had commanded. These aren't, these aren't difficult instructions. There's, there's no way he didn't understand what God was instructing. But he didn't do it. Not perfectly. Three simple instructions and Abram fell short. Look at verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The fact that Abram immediately compromised in his obedience unto God should probably elicit two responses from us. On the one hand, I think we can say we should be pretty disappointed in, in, in his sin because God doesn't welcome compromise. He doesn't invite compromise. He doesn't tolerate compromise. He didn't command us to love him with a good portion of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say, you shall love the Lord your God with most of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He demanded it all. He demanded all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Abram failed to live up to that, st- that standard. And thus, he sinned. And so on the one hand, we, we should be disappointed because all sin is an offense to God. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin is, is heinous. Even the smallest sin. Even the smallest sin deserves, warrants, earns God's eternal wrath on the entire universe. So our first response should be disappointment. But at the same time, on the other hand, our, our second response maybe could be hope. Because Abram's sin did not nullify the promises of God unto him. That's because God's promises are based on His faithfulness, not on the fragile faith of man. And God would have been perfectly just. It would have been perfect justice for Him to have ended the story right here, right now. Abram is given a simple command. He doesn't do it. Boom. End of story. Move on to chapter what we find in chapter 26. Who knows? But yet we know that this is only the beginning of Abram's story. Abram's faith was fragile. Abram's faith was faulty. But Abram did have faith. And God is pleased by faith. Hebrews would tell us that God is only pleased by faith and that it is impossible to please God without faith. And Abram had faith. He may not have understood God's promises, but he believed God's promises. And if you have placed saving faith in Christ, you can be deeply comforted by this awesome, awesome display of patience and grace on God's behalf. 
Paul would also say this to the Romans. He'd say in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Notice that Paul says, received by faith. He doesn't say that faith earns grace. No, faith receives grace. And so in a way, if, if, you're, if you're in Christ, if you have put saving faith in Christ, you too can be comforted in a way by Abram's compromise. Because it shows us that God's continued faithfulness to His promises remains. It's not nullified by our sin. God's continued faithfulness to His promises in response to Abram's compromise can assure you that God, if you are in Christ, that God will not abandon you or forsake you, but that He has an abundant grace for you. His promises unto you are not nullified by your disobedience. But if you are walking constantly in disobedience, it is wise to check your spiritual pulse. When a child learns how to walk, anybody ever watched a kid learn how to walk? Most of you have. Most of you have kids. It's kind of fun. At the same time, if you're a parent, it's pretty intense. You don't want them to, to, to learn how to walk on the kitchen tile or something where if they fall, they'll crack their head open or something. Who knows? If you guys remember... Grant, uh, Garrett and Catherine's son. I, I was just staying with Garrett and Catherine down in Southern California, so they were fresh on my mind this week. But if you remember Grant, um, he was just starting to take his, his very first steps the week that they moved away last year. And I remember when, when I went over, Michael, you were there, uh, went over and, and, and Grant would take one or two or maybe three steps at a time, and then what would happen? He'd fall. He'd fall. And that's the way every child learns how to walk is by taking a couple baby steps and falling. Just a couple steps at a time and then he falls. And likewise, as the Christian learns to walk by faith, that walk is often characterized by taking a couple baby steps and falling. Taking a couple baby steps and falling. But what does a child do when they fall? The parent continues to encourage them. Get up. Let's, let's try it again, right? What would happen if, if that was the end of the story? If you know, once you fell, you just kind of gave up. Every one of us would still be crawling. Can you imagine if we had a world where everybody was crawling? Honey, I'm going to crawl to the store. Do you, do you need anything while I'm there? You know, I, I'm going to go for a quick crawl around the block. I mean, can you imagine that? Abram is learning to walk here. And he immediately falls. He immediately stumbles. On the one hand, we can say it's understandable because he's got a flesh nature that he's wrestling with. But on the other hand, it's inexcusable. Instead of doing what God says and leaving his father behind, he brings his father with him. Instead of leaving his relatives behind, his nephew Lot tags along. And what happens? His father causes a layover in the land of Haran. Lot causes a lot of problems. Remember what we read back in the previous chapter? Look in the previous chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. 
We read Terah, that's, that's Abram's father. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, but when they came to the land of Haran, they settled there. We're going over here. Oh, we got part way, and it sounds like Dad is the one leading the caravan. The truth is that the things that you hold on to from your life before Christ are bound to cause problems for you eventually in one way or another. The things that you have held on to from your life before Christ will cause pain in one way or another. When God asks you, when God commands you to separate from the things that influenced you before God opened the eyes of your heart to behold the glorious splendor and the majesty of Christ who died in your place, it's for your benefit that you separate from the things that influenced you before. What could you possibly gain By reaching back, by looking back and reaching into your life before God calls you to find something that would improve your life in Christ. To to replace something that that would be better than what God has given you. The blessings that God has provided for you in Christ. Let me ask you this. Would you, if your house was a blazing furnace, would you run back in to find your favorite toothbrush? If your mother threw threw away a pair of old, sweaty, smelly socks and the garbage men picked it up, would you chase the truck down and dig through all that garbage to find those old, sweaty, smelly socks? Because there really is no difference, is there? There really is no difference. If you refuse to separate from your worldly influences, it will mean entering a house that is a blazing furnace. It'll mean digging and sorting through tons and tons of garbage. The worldly influences that you're tempted to hold on to, the worldly influences that you're tempted to go back to or to look to from your life before Christ are bound to cause you problems and pain eventually. It is entirely to your benefit to separate from them. Easier said than done, isn't it? Easier said than done. Walking in faith, walking by faith is difficult. And it's filled with landmines of temptation that are impossible for us to navigate perfectly. But walking by faith starts with baby steps. And we do learn. We do improve. We get wiser. We surround ourselves with people who can help us navigate pitfalls. This is all how we grow. It's how we come to see and appreciate the goodness and the mercy of God more fully. It's how we come to see that it is to our benefit to separate ourselves from what seeks to separate us from God and from uncompromised devotion unto Him. Abram faced an obstacle course of temptations just like you do, just like I do, and like us, he had to learn how to walk by faith and resist temptations. And he fell. But he got back up. And he'd fall again. But he'd get back up. 
He yielded to the temptation to compromise, and yet God granted him the grace to press on, to keep going, to do what God had instructed him to do. And through it all, Abram would learn to look to God, to seek Him, to imitate Him, to devote himself to God's will, to devote himself to God's ways and His power, to devote himself more and more to obedience unto God, and to thus illustrate the reality that faith without works is dead. And that true faith is made evident by obedience unto God. By good fruit. The temptation to compromise is often stronger than we can bear. We have a literal spiritual enemy who seeks to undo us, who seeks to tempt us, who seeks to cause us to stumble, who seeks to, to cause us to lose confidence in God's promises. He tests us with the intention of absolutely obliterating your faith in God. But only when God lets Him. And God lets Him sometimes. We don't know how often. We don't know what God prevents Him from doing. But when God lets him, he knows that whatever he's allowing the the enemy to do, whatever he's allowing Satan to do, will only serve to strengthen the faith of his people. Will he undo your faith? Will the enemy undo your faith? He would. If God were not sustaining your faith, if God were not granting you the power, the conviction to live for Him, to abide in Him by an abundance of grace. And if you are in Christ through faith, He is sustaining your faith. He is sustaining your life in Him. Every person whom the Father draws to the Son will be saved. They will endure to the end. He preserves the faith of His people through the darkest seasons, through the harshest trials. He is faithful to His promises. Just as part of Abram's calling was to bless others, we have to understand that's part of our calling too. Your calling is to bless others if you are in Christ. Abram wasn't called to bless absolutely everybody. He was called to bless all the families of the earth. So what's the difference between blessing everybody and blessing all the families of the earth? In the end, every tribe, every tongue, Every nation, every race, every color, all the families of the earth will be represented in heaven. And we will all worship God before the throne together. Abram's calling to bless others was a call to bless the people of God first and foremost. The good works that we're called to in Christ includes primarily serving the body of Christ He not only created you for that purpose, He has gifted you in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for that purpose. And that's how we grow. is by walking in the ways that God has gifted us. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which He planned beforehand for us to walk in. The Gospel call is not an optional suggestion if you decide that maybe Jesus can help you to be healthy or wealthy or happy or sappy and sentimental. The gospel call is the sovereign and authoritative fiat of a God who rules the universe in His glory 
to live your life under His authority, in His kingdom, by His precepts. His calling is not to a life of worldly luxury or worldly comfort. It's a calling to the only thing which will satisfy the very depths of your soul. The very depths of your heart. It's not a painless life that we're called to. It's definitely not a painless life that we're called to. He doesn't promise that it's going to be easy, but He does promise that He will be with us on the journey, strengthening us, disciplining us, preserving us in our faith until the end. So know this. A difficult journey with God is better than an easy stroll through life without Him. He warns Abram that there will be people who who will curse you, Abram. And he also promises, I'll take care of that. Those who curse you, I will curse, he says. Jesus warns us, if you are of the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, talking about citizenship here, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The gospel call isn't a call to an easy and luxurious life. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to being grown in the likeness of Christ. And that happens most easily. We are most willing to allow that, to to work with God in the darkest trials of life. When we are brought closer to Him than we would have to walk if we were out on mountaintops. God may not ask you to literally leave your country. He may not ask you to literally separate from your relatives. He may not ask you to literally separate from your father's house. But He does instruct us to separate ourselves from anything and everything that would restrain us in any way from living in uncompromised obedience unto Him. The calling of God is a call unto personal, practical holiness that it would be acted out in our lives. We have it. We have the holiness, the righteousness of Christ, but that we would grow in that in a practical sense. Through faith, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for Romans 8.1. You're a new creation. You're not just a monkey who's imitating human behavior. God has changed the very essence of your nature, giving you new desires, giving you new affections. The reality of the new nature is demonstrated in a changed life. And for some, that's going to be quick. For some, it's going to be gradual. But there will be change. Friends, the calling of God is a calling to grow in the likeness of Christ, which will invariably mean breaking away from the culture's way of acting, from the culture's way of of thinking. I'm not talking about behavior modification. I'm talking about heart transformation. I'm talking about something that that is better, something that is so much sweeter, something that's even easier than just pure moralism, just behaving the right way on the outside but being dead on the inside. Because if your behavior has changed, but your heart remains distant from God, you are still in rebellion toward God. He wants your heart. He wants all of your heart. 
And so we're talking about a change of desires, a change in affections, a changing of your will so that you're not doing things out of a dreadful obligation, but because that is what you live for, for the sake of pleasing and glorifying God. So we're talking about inner we're talking about holiness, inner holiness, and inner devotedness of living your life in the presence of God, for the pleasure of God, under the precepts of God, for the glory of God, and finding a satisfaction in that which penetrates the very depths of your heart. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your troubles, regardless of whatever may come, regardless of the cost. The great Puritan author John Owen wrote this. He said, the, good, the duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. Rather, they are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. We do not have the ability in ourselves to accomplish the least of God's tasks. End quote. So what are we supposed to do? Every natural desire Every natural instinct within us seeks to live by our rules, however we wish, for our own glory. So how do we turn off the faucet of self-exalting righteousness that we think we have in ourselves that just drips and drips and drips through life? How do we turn that off? We turn the eyes of our hearts to Christ. We look to Him who bought us with His blood. And we learn to look to Him more and more regularly. Not just in times of trouble, but in times of comfort. And we find in Him the strength and the conviction and the willful desire to walk by faith, to walk in obedience unto God. It's only by the grace of God that you will actually learn to hate those self-exalting, self-glorifying desires and to turn from them and to seek to exalt and obey God instead of yourself. And even then, we do it imperfectly. Although he obeyed imperfectly, Abram obeyed God. He took baby steps, he fell, but he got back up and he continued to walk by faith. He went as the Lord told him to the place God directed him. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is sin. Legitimate Faith is made evident by good works. Faith and works are two sides of the same coin. So repent and turn from anything which would hinder your obedience and believe in the promises of God again over and over and over. Whatever stands between you and obedience unto Christ, the choice is clear. The choice is clear. You must obey Christ. And by His grace, you'll learn. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that You would cultivate the soil of our hearts, that it would not be hard and thus your word would not penetrate it, that it would not be shallow, and thus we would wither when temptation or trouble comes, and that it would not be distracted, that our hearts would be
pure and clean, ready to receive your word, ready to be changed by your word. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die in our place, to die the death that we deserved, to live the life that we should have lived. And we thank you that through him, through faith in him, we have grace to help us along this journey. Oh God, grant us the endurance to run this race with conviction, to run this race with a desire to please you, a growing desire to honor and glorify you in all that we do. Father, we thank you for changing our nature. We know that within us there is nothing good. And we know, Lord, that we still struggle with the things that would influence us to compromise. And Lord, I pray that those, the presence of those things in our lives and our awareness of those things in our lives would give us a deeper appreciation for your grace, that we would not take advantage of it, not abuse it, but Lord, that we would walk by faith and glorify you more and more the longer we go for the glory of Christ. For the glory of Christ, we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.